This is the second part of a two-part conversation with Johan Hari. Check out part one first for context. Professor uh, Sheldon Cohen carried out this study which you talked about where she took a bunch of people and recorded how many friends and healthy social connections each of them had and put them in contact with their permission to uh, the common cold virus. And the isolated people were three times more likely to catch the cold than those who had healthy social connections. That was fascinating. I mean, it's amazing. What Professor Martha McClintock did this study with um, rats and found that rats... Um, isolated rats something like 80 times more likely to develop the rat equivalent of breast cancer than rats living in connection with other rats um so there's i mean there's a whole isolation is a catastrophe for social species right obviously one of the reasons why the amish have such low levels of depression and anxiety is because you there are no isolated amish right i mean that there are plenty to criticise about the Amish. I'm a gay atheist. You can imagine I'm, I'm not a big defender of the Amish. But spending time in an Amish community, you say, oh, right, there is no loneliness here, right? There isn't, there's other problems for sure, um, but there's no, no loneliness there. And, um, yeah, so I think that's a really important, important aspect and important thing to, to understand about what's going on. It's not the only thing. I mean, it's, it's one of the nice causes that I go through, but it's, I think it's a big one. And I think, let's think about this because... You know, a lot of people say to me when I talk about this, well, what about how can you say we're so disconnected? We're more connected than we've ever been, right? I could log on now. I could click a button while I'm talking to you and I would see, you know, 50 of my friends there. I could go and chat to in a little box. And I wanted to understand this. And so I went to the role social media may play in solving or causing depression, what its relationships to depression and anxiety are. So a place I really made a breakthrough for myself in this was when I went to the first ever internet rehab center. It's in um, Washington State. It's outside Spokane. And it was so fascinating, partly because I have to admit, I arrived there. It's a clearing in the woods. First thing I did absolutely unconsciously was glance at my phone and feel really irritated I had no cell phone reception to check my email. (laughs) Oh, wait, you're in the right place, right? Um, So it was fascinating. The woman who runs that place, Dr. Hilary Cash, is a totally fascinating person. She became a kind of accidental expert on, on these questions because she was a psychotherapist who happened to have an office near the the Microsoft offices in the 90s. So she caught the first wave that later becomes a kind of tsunami. And and Dr. Cash said, it really stayed with me. She said, look, so they get all sorts of people, places called Restart Washington. They get all sorts of people there, all sorts of patients. But then disproportionately, they get young men who become obsessed with these multiplayer role-playing games like World of Warcraft. And she said to me, what do these young men get out of these games? It's precisely the things they used to get from the culture, but they no longer get, right? They, they get um, a, sense, a sense that they can roam around. The average child now spends, in the Western world now spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner, because by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes. Um, they get a chance, sense they can roam around. They get a sense of tribe get a sense of identity, they get a sense of a way they can gain status, that will be recognised by the people around them. But, but what they're getting is like a parody of those things. It's not there's no value in video games, of course I'm not against them. But they get a kind of, I began to think when I was speaking to the people in, in, in Restart Washington, began to think the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? 
I'm not against porn like virtually all men. Sometimes I look at it. But, you know, porn will meet a certain basic itch. But no one spends half an hour or an hour looking at porn and feels valued and held and satisfied the way you do after sex, if the sex goes right, at least. Right. You know, um, you know, and if your sex life consisted entirely of looking at porn, you'd be going around frustrated and, and irritated and angry all the time because your deeper needs as a, as a human being would not be being met. Right. The things you evolved to do, the, the needs you evolved to have would not be being met. Right. Um, and in a similar way, I think, you know, you, you've got to think about the moment when social media arrives as well. But just by coincidence, social media arrives in the late 90s, the early 2000s. At that point, lots of the things that are driving the depression and anxiety epidemic were already in place. So we've talked about loneliness, which is one of the nine causes I talk about in Lost Connections. That was already supercharged before the Internet comes along. Right. Mm-hmm. But what happens is the Internet arrives and it looks a lot like the things you've lost. Right. You've lost your friends, so here's some Facebook friends. You've lost your status, well, here's some status updates. But it's not the thing you've lost, right? It's a parody of the thing you've lost. Mark Maron, the comedian, said 90% of all Facebook status updates could be boiled down to the underlying sentiment, will somebody somewhere please acknowledge I exist, right? And I do think there's a, I mean, that's kind of a rather sad um, joke, but I do think there's a lot, a lot in that. So I think, in a sense, a bit like we were saying about addiction and like you and I talked about addiction before from my previous book, Chasing the Screen. You can focus on the object of the obsession, right? You can say, oh, what's the internet done to make us? And there are all sorts of things to criticize about the you know, Silicon Valley and the way that a lot of these things were designed to maximize addiction and maximize compulsive use. All that is true. And that's important to discuss. And there should be all sorts of regulations around that. But we also got to look at, well, what's the hole people are trying to fill in the first place, right? Why are we feeling this way? Why has it hijacked us? And it's partly the device, but it, just like with drug addiction, it's partly the drug, but it's largely the pain that we brought, we had that, that, that we're trying to deal with. It's not a good way of dealing with it, just like opioids are not, are in one way a good way of dealing with your pain. They really will reduce your pain in some, some level, but they're not a good way in the long term for all sorts of obvious reasons your listeners don't need me to explain. But yeah, so do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And jumping on that idea with, is, is, is also when you, you t- described how loneliness is not the physical absence of other people. It's, it's the sense that you're not sharing anything that matters with anything, anyone else. W- what's the difference? Yeah, this was Professor, one of Professor Cassiope's really interesting findings. So if I said to any of your listeners, do you feel lonely? No one would have difficulty understanding the question and answering, right? They may feel embarrassed about the answer, but they wouldn't find it hard to comprehend the answer and how they might answer the question and how they might answer. Um, but what Professor Cassiopo discovered was quite interesting, which is so you instinctively think, right, well, loneliness is not interacting with people. So we picture like an elderly person who can't leave the house. And the solution to loneliness is more, a greater quantity of social interaction, right? Uh, just speaking to more people a day or whatever. But what he discovered is, People saying they feel lonely doesn't correlate, doesn't match up that well with how many people they interact with per day, right? So you could have people who interacted with, spoke to 50 people a day and felt quite lonely. You could have people who only spoke to a couple of people and didn't feel lonely. It's like, well, what's going on? Right? Why is this? Uh, and, and he gave a couple of examples to help me to understand this. So imagine that you'd never been to New York before and you go to Times Square, right? You'll be surrounded by people. 
the people everywhere, you'll probably feel quite lonely, right? Or imagine you're in a hospital bed um, and, you know, you can call for a nurse any moment, you push a button, a nurse will come. Um, you, you can get a social interaction straight away. You'll probably feel quite lonely. And he said, why is that? And he, from his research, uh, incredible research he did, he, he discovered many things. But what he discovered is loneliness isn't about how many people you interact with. It's about whether you feel that you are in something together, whether you are, you are, you, you're giving something to them and they're giving something to you voluntarily. If money's involved, it kind of doesn't deal with the loneliness. So in many cases. So um, you think about that, that guy in the hospital bed pushes the button for the nurse, the nurse will come and help him. But if he tries to help the nurse, she's going to say, no, don't do that, right? Um, the, the people all around you in Times Square, they're not going to give you anything and you're not going to give them anything. You're not in it together, right? So you're not alone, but you are lonely, right? Um, and this helps to explain why, for example, in marriages, people become lonely towards the end when actually the sense that you're in it together has broken down. That's what causes loneliness, right? The sense that oh, actually, this person isn't going to look out for me and I'm not looking out for this person anymore. Suddenly you feel you feel lonely. So loneliness is not being in a shared project with people. We don't know why that is, but Professor Cassiopo's theory, again, goes back to what we were saying about being in a tribe, right? Um, you can see why humans would have evolved to, for there to be a, 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 an evolutionary benefit for feeling we were in it together, we were contributing something and some people contributing back to us. Someone with those instincts is more likely to survive than it was just a just a giver or just a kind of moocher, right? He was just happy to just receive help from other people and not give anything, give anything back. So it's probably, I mean, you can't, it's always difficult with these theories about evolution because you can't go back in time and run a different experiment with a different species. But you can see how that, it seems to me a quite plausible story that that would help to explain, explain why. And again, that gives us different, so I go through in, in Lost Connections, lots of different routes out of depression and anxiety for which there's evidence. I think they should be thought of as antidepressants, right? That in addition to chemical antidepressants, I think anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. Um, and, you know, so I go through a whole range of different antidepressants, uh, some of which are about reconnecting people to the tribe and how we can do that, but some of which are about completely different causes and different solutions. Talking about tribes, um one thing I found fascinating is that if you deliberately try to become happier, you will not become happier, obviously taking averages, you will not become happier if you live in the United States or Britain. But if you live in Russia, Japan or Taiwan and you deliberately try to become happier, you will become happier. Why is that? What's the difference? I was really fascinated by this. Um, I found it quite challenging, actually. There were several causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about. I found challenging because I realized how much they played out in my own life. I was interviewed this, this amazing woman called Dr. Brett Ford, who, um, so she's a social scientist in Berkeley. I went, I went to see her and she did this really with her colleagues. She did this really interesting research. So what they want to figure out is if you, as you say, if you consciously and deliberately decided you were going to try to be happy, you said, I'm going to spend two hours a day trying to make myself happier would you actually become happier? And they did this research in, with their colleagues, with colleagues all over the world, in four countries, in the US, in Russia, in China, and in Japan. And what they found was fascinating. In the US, if you try to make yourself happier, you do not become happier. But in the other countries, if you try to make yourself happier, you do become happier. And they were trying to figure out, well, why is that? What's going on? So they did, um, they did all sorts of, 
you know, breakdown of the research. What they found is in the US, if you try to make yourself happier, you don't become happier. But in the other countries, if you try to make yourself happier, you do become happier. And they're like, well, why? What's happening here? Uh, and what they saw, what they saw when they, the breakdown was, um, in the US, if you, and I'm pretty sure this is true in Europe, or perhaps to a lesser degree, if you try to make yourself happier, generally you do something for yourself, right? You buy something, you show off on Instagram, you try to get promotion, whatever it is. In the other countries, if you try to make yourself happier, generally these are averages, not in every instance, generally you try to do something for someone else. You know, you do something for your friends, your family, your community. So they have an instinctively collective idea of what happiness is. And we have an instinctively individual idea of what happiness is. And it turns out our idea of happiness, which is inculcated in us by this machinery of advertising, and deep aspects of our culture, just, just don't work very well, right? A species of individualists would have died out on the savannas of Africa. We're not that species, right? But, but these collective ideas of happiness do, um, do work to a much greater, greater degree. Um, and, and again, that helps us to understand why there's been this big rise in depression and anxiety at the same time as a rise in individualism. You know, the other day I was looking at a friend of mine went through, has gone through a terrible, terrible personal tragedy. And I looked at my friend's Facebook wall and people who genuinely thought they were being kind and encouraging. Um, one of the people had shared a meme that said something like, the only person who can help you is you, right? And I'm sure they genuinely thought that was this nice, care, absolute, firstly, it's just completely wrong, right? But secondly, you can see how deep that individualism has gone. The people mm -hmm. offer it even as a kind of feel-good, feel-good, banal bromide, right? Um, you can see how deep that how deep that runs, how 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 cemented that is in the in the culture. Shame, shame, shame is known to make people sick. I mean, uh, an example is even when they received medical care at the exact same point in their illness during the AIDS crisis, closeted gay men died on average two to three years earlier than openly gay men. This was the cause of depression and anxiety that I found hardest to learn about for all sorts of personal reasons that I can explain but and it helped me to understand why I had remained so committed to the chemical imbalance story for such a long time even though at some level even quite early on I thought this can't be what's the, this can't be the only thing going on here so to explain this I have to tell you a story that's going to sound for a minute like I'm talking about some completely different thing What's your listeners going to think? What's he talking about? Why is he telling us this? But it led to a breakthrough in depression and anxiety. And I don't think you can really understand that breakthrough if you don't understand how it was discovered. So in the mid-1980s, a doctor I got to know called Dr. Vincent Felitti uh, in San Diego in California was given a, a, a quite difficult task. Kaiser Permanente is one of the big not-for-profit medical providers in California. And they had this massive problem. It was just a huge and growing obesity crisis. And everything they were trying, like giving people nutritional advice, um, you know, exercise programs, just weren't making very much difference. So they gave Vincent a load of money and they said, look, just do blue skies research, figure out what the hell's going on here. We can't carry on like this. So Dr. Felili started to work with 350 severely obese people, people who weighed in most cases more than 400 pounds. So really, really obese and people who tried everything and nothing was working and said, this is like last chance saloon. And he starts to work with them. And one day 
he's just brainstorming ideas. One day he has this really kind of what seems like a very dumb idea in one way. He just thought, what would happen if they literally just stopped eating? And we gave them like nutritional supplements so they didn't get scurvy or whatever. Would they just burn through the fat stores in their body until they got down to a normal weight? So obviously with like mega intense uh, medical supervision, they started to do this. And it, the crazy thing is in one way it worked. There was in fact, uh, I mean, so I'll give you an example, a woman, I'm going to call her Susan to protect her medical confidentiality. Um, women who went down, Susan had been more than 400 pounds, she went down to 138 pounds. People are celebrating, people are calling Vincent a lifesaver, they're, you know, Susan's family are thanking God. And then something happened that no one anticipated. One day Susan just freaked out and fled and starts like gorging on fast food and very quickly she gets back to a day, not quite where she was, but a dangerous way. And Vincent called her in and said, Susan, what, what happened? She looks down and she, she, I don't know, I don't know. And he says, well, did anything happen that day? Tell me about that day when you cracked. Turns out something had happened that day hadn't ever happened to Susan. A man had hit on her, you know, when she was very obese, men didn't hit on her. A man, uh, a colleague tried to sleep with her, but not a sexual assault or anything, but was like hitting on her. And it really frightened her. And then at a later session, Vincent said, well, Susan, when did you start to put on weight? She said it was when she was 10. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 10 that didn't happen when you were eight, didn't happen when you were 14? Why, why when you were 10? And she looked down and said, well, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. It turned out when he interviewed them, 55% of the people in the program had put on their weight in the aftermath of being sexually assaulted or abused. And Vincent was just really puzzled by this. What was going on? He started to think that this thing that appears to be a pathology, and at one sense is obviously a pathology, obesity, actually had a deep underlying reason. It, it was sexually protective. And um, Susan said to Vincent, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. But this is quite a small study. So Vincent decided to do a much bigger study, which led to this breakthrough in depression. So... It got a load of funding from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, one of the huge bodies in the US that funds these things, gold, gold standard. Everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente in San Diego for a year was given, for anything, whether it was headaches, broken leg, schizophrenia, anything, was given a questionnaire. First part of the questionnaire said, did any of these 10 bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, that kind of thing. And then they were asked, did any of these 10, have you had any of these 10 problems as an adult? Things like obesity, um, addiction. And at the last minute, they added depression and suicide attempts. When the CDC added up the results, I mean, they were just astonished. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were radically more likely to become depressed and anxious. Um, if you'd had six of those categories you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide as an adult. So you don't get figures like that in epidemiology very often. It's an extraordinary result. And it goes to exactly what you're asking about, Duncan. It goes to shame. Um, well, there's a reason we know that. But, you know, when I went to go and see Vincent in San Diego the first time, I remember being really, really angry really kind of enraged with him. 
I, mean, I couldn't tell. I was like, why am I so pissed off with this guy? What's... Um, I think... So, when I was a child, I'd experienced some very extreme acts from an adult in my life. Um, you know, my, my mother had been very ill. My dad was in a different country. Um, and, and so I experienced these very extreme acts. And I think I found the chemical imbalance theory so appealing because I didn't want to think about these things. I didn't want to think that this individual had any power over me. I didn't want to think it was playing out in my life now. And seeing Vincent meant that I had to kind of reintegrate these experiences into how I thought about my own depression, which is really painful. But Vincent, everyone who came, everyone who filled in this questionnaire and said they'd experienced childhood trauma, Vincent got the doc, their doctor. The next time they went to the doctor, they weren't called back, but the next time they went to the doctor, the doctor was told to say to the patient, something like, so I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever it was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And a significant minority said, no, I don't want to talk about it, but most people did. Average conversation lasted five minutes. At the end of which it was randomised. Some of them were told, we can refer you on to a therapist if you'd like to. Um, what was fascinating is just that five minute conversation alone where an authority figure said, I'm really sorry, that shouldn't have happened. This should never have happened to you. That alone led to a really significant form of depression and anxiety. And the people who referred to a therapist had a bigger fall. And this is part of a broader body of evidence. Professor James Pennebaker at Florida State has done really good research on this. Exactly about releasing shame, right? If you, if you go through these things, you internalize a lot of shame for all sorts of complex reasons, partly because you're told it's your fault. But I think also, and I have no way of proving this, this is just a hunch. I think it's partly because if you're in that situation when you're a child, often there's nothing you can do about it. You can't get away from this person. And if you, if you, there's a funny way in which internally, if you blame yourself, you gain a weird sort of power. If you just, if you don't blame yourself, if it's not your fault, then you're just like a pinball being whacked around a pinball machine, right? There's terrible things happening to you and you have no agency. But weirdly, if you, if you say, it's, if you tell yourself, well, it is my fault, which you're being told anyway, what that does is, well, you're not the pinball being smacked around the machine. You're the, you're the guy controlling the pinball, what they call the flippers on the pinball machine. You know, um, it gives you a curious sense of agency. Now, in practice, you don't have agency, so you blame yourself, it makes you feel worse. But I can see why it happens. That's just, that bit, there's no science for that. That's just my hunch. And I ask scientists about this, and they're like, we just don't know. That might well be true. But Dr. Robert Ander, who, who was one of the key figures in doing this research, said okay. a really beautiful line to me. He said, when you see people behaving in ways that seem so strange, whether it's depression, anxiety, addiction, obesity, we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you which I think is a really important, and I would say in line with all the other research, what is happening to you, you know? So that, again, that's one of the nine causes of depression, anxiety. I talk about in Lost Connections, Childhood Trauma, and that, that method of releasing your shame is one of the nine solutions, one of the seven kind of antidepressants that I talk about. And actually, once I'd really absorbed this, once I'd gotten through that anger, I did have a sense, if I'm honest, of how unethical it is I had a doctor who told me it was just to do with a chemical imbalance in my brain. 13 years I was given these drugs. Never once did anyone say to me, any doctor, anyone in the health system say to me, 
is there any reason you might feel this way? Right? Now, that's not necessarily criticism of the individual doctors who have on average seven minutes to see their, their patients who are under a tremendous amount of pressure. But that is a criticism of the wider system right? and the society that's not given doctors those tools. That's just told them to say something that those doctors know is oversimplistic. Those doctors know isn't true, which is it's just in many cases. I mean, some of them don't seem to know this. And it's been kind of startling to me. Is there any final thoughts or any idea that you want to leave our audience with? Yeah, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, your pain makes sense. You're not crazy, you're not broken. Krishnamurti, the great Indian um, philosopher, said, it's no sign of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society, right? And, and we had the power and agency to change our culture, right? I'm gay, I'm 39 years old. First time I ever heard the concept of gay marriage was when I was 20 and thought it was a great idea and completely crazy and I would never live to see it, right? Recently, I showed one of my nephews who's 17 the things that used to be said on the front pages of British newspapers when I was a child about gay people. He literally couldn't believe it. He said to me, did, did someone call the police? Now, if the craziest, most out there right-wing politician said on Twitter one of the things that used to be the front pages of newspapers about gay people when I was a kid, they'd have to resign, right? That change has happened. That's 2,000 years of homophobia that fell in two generations, right? So the fact that we feel we can't change things is a symptom of our depression and anxiety. It's not true. We have the, everyone listening to this show is the beneficiary of extraordinary changes that seemed impossible at the start. The weekend was regarded as a crazy revolutionary idea when it was first proposed by trade unionists. My grandmothers were not allowed to have a bank account once they got married, right? That's not so long ago, right? So no woman watching this needs me to mansplain transformations that happened in women's lives. We still have a long way to go, of course, but there have been extraordinary transformations. So your pain makes sense. We can deal with the reasons why we're in such deep pain. That is the best way of dealing with depression and anxiety. I've also been given this wankerish script that my publicists have told me to say at the end of interviews, um, which always makes me feel like I'm a kind of jingle salesman. But um, So I meant to say, if, you, um, if you'd like to have any more, no information, any more information about the book, if you'd like to find out what a range of people have said about the book, from Elton John to Hillary Clinton to Glenn Greenwald to Russell Brand to Ariana Huffington to Naomi Klein... Um, you can, if you want to hear audio of interviews with lots of the people we've talked about, some of the experts and lots of people who've been through depression, anxiety and have interesting perspectives. Or if you want to take a quiz to see how much you know about the causes of depression and anxiety and the solutions. Um, or you want to find out where to get the book or the audio book. Go to www.thelostconnections.com. It's thelostconnections.com, not lostconnections.com because annoyingly there's a band called Lost Connections. <laughs> after I'd named the book, uh, but, but they don't exist anymore. And apparently they're quite a, quite a good band. I really need to listen to their music, but I, uh, I hope they've had a little boost from my book actually. And also from lo- thelostconnections.com, you can figure out where you can hear where to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Johan, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's, it's been fantastic. Uh, Duncan, could you arrange so that when you inevitably in the next five minutes are bitten by this cobra and die, that someone will post this online so that it wasn't a complete waste of our time. Right? If you now die, I'm going to feel really, really guilty, by the way, right?